Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and very excited uh, about tonight's show for a couple of reasons. Uh, I've got uh, a couple of favorites here on the Coach's Corner panel coming up in just a moment, and then a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be joined uh, by my very special guest, uh, Fran Pirozzolo. Uh, he's a neuroscientist and sports psychologist, among other things, and I'm very, very excited to uh, to get his take on the uh, uh, that side of the game that you know we don't always uh, often hear about, and uh, I think he's going to have some very interesting uh, perspectives on uh, on uh, the psychological side of the game, if you will, for lack of better words. Um, but want to remind everybody, of course, we are live every Thursday evening from six to eight PM Central here on the BlogTalkRadio.com network. Uh, also, want to remind everybody that Golf Talk Live is brought to you by iGolfSports.com and Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, iGolfSports.com is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality program designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And of course, Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top PGA and LPGA teacher professionals, all designed to help improve your game from tee to green. So subscribe today at GolfTipsMag.com. All right, as I mentioned, I've got a, a great show this morning, or sorry, this evening, pardon me, and I've got two uh, great guests going to be joining me here on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, first up is uh, Jamie Leno-Zimron. Uh, she's an instructor, body worker, and consultant. She's also an Aikido six-degree black belt. Uh, she's a Class A LPGA teacher professional, uh, corporate and conference speaker, uh, executive trainer and coach, and speaker for Vistage International and TEC Canada, uh, which is for the executive committee. Uh, also joining uh, on the panel is uh, another regular is John Hughes. He's a PJ Master Professional and Honorary President of the North Florida PJ Section, and he's the recipient of the 2013 PJ of America Horton Smith Award, and he's also a uh, Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 Instructor and part of the Golf Advisory Staff for Golf Tips Magazine. So guys, welcome to the Coach's Corner panel here on Golf Talk Live. Thank you, Ted. Ted. It's great to be here. Great to be with John. Yep. Same here. All right. So we're going to talk about something a little, uh, a little different, um, and I think we'll have a very interesting uh, discussion tonight. Golf, as we all know, is a uh, unique sport, unlike uh, many others out there. Uh, obviously, the, the optimal uh, objective is uh, to get the lowest score because that, that wins, obviously. Um, and the balls, uh, the ball rather, is un- uh, motionless uh, when played and. Uh, unlike many other sports, and most courses require, you know, that we dress a little bit uh, different than some of the other sports. Uh, but with all its quirks comes a list of benefits uh, that many other sports cannot provide. Um, and uh, Jamie, I'm going to start with you on this one here, um, and I'm going to throw a few uh, facts and and things in along the way. Um, but golf, the first 
benefit is, is it's good for your body. Uh, the average course requires uh, a person to walk, uh, if they're walking, uh, over five miles, uh, whether it's carrying or pushing uh, a, a bag cart, uh, walking up and down different undulations. Uh, this can be a great workout and can burn as much as 2,000 calories, depending on how flat or hilly the, the course is. And uh, even if you're taking a golf cart, uh, power cart is what I'm referring to. The golf swing itself is a full-body workout using arms, legs, and core muscles. So imagine the results uh, if you do this on a daily or even a weekly basis. Talk about some other things uh, besides what I mentioned, or including what I've mentioned, Jamie, um, that makes golf very unique uh, and how it's good for the body. Beautiful question. <laughs> and I always love your, uh, your statistics, so they're really good. Um, well, uh, oh, let's, let me start with, uh, you know, I've developed a fitness system. I call it Make Your Golf Club Your Health Club. And I think we could say that in a large sense as well as the sense of my fitness system, which utilizes the golf club to, to stretch, to strengthen, to integrate, to balance all of our muscles, as you said, Golf is actually a full-body workout. I think as we get a little older, we realize just how physical the game is. Um, mm-hmm. We have so much rotation. We need a lot of strength in our legs just to make the swing. Um, you know, we're using all of our joints so down to our wrists, our fingers, our ankles, our neck. Everything is involved in the golf swing and with a lot of velocity. So, you know, in that sense, um, you know, I use the golf club. I've developed a, a complete, an entire fitness system that works on all the golf muscles and works into the golf swing. So in that sense, we could say, make your golf club your health club. I think the club, in a sense in itself, in terms of the social aspect of it, which unfortunately we are not having so much these days due to COVID, mm-hmm. um, and I think we're all realizing how important the social aspect is of our lives and getting together with friends and laughing and relating and having sharing experiences sharing meals. We don't get to do that as much these days, but uh, as usual, but we are being able to play golf more than most people are able to get out there and enjoy their sports. And so in that sense, you know, we have the social factor. There's a really huge one, and that is about being out in nature. And, you know, our playing field is all in nature. The grass, the sky, the trees, the wind, uh, the elements, it's raining, just to be out in nature, and in fact, I've just been doing some research lately that, about grounding, and researchers, even for the National Institute of Health, this isn't some far out kind of you know, new age thing, uh, researchers are getting into the effects of what they call earthing for grounding. Earthing means contact with the earth, and the, uh, we are made up of electrical magnetic energy in our bodies. And so is the earth. So is everything. It's the same energy that makes up our life, which uh, we call qi, qi uh, golf, aikido, qi. And the, there is a mutual interconductivity of energy between our human body and the earth itself. So in golf, we have an opportunity to connect with the earth. And what researchers are discovering is that there's a really positive effect at a cellular level in our bodies. Uh, we can tell there's sort of this antidepressive, anti-anxiety effect, a calming effect, but we're talking about anti-immune uh, or anti-inflammatory properties, uh, particularly uh, researchers in the inflammation field are studying the effects of earthing and that interconductivity. Um, and so it's really very, very interesting. We don't even know enough about it. Researchers are starting to 
look into it and tell us more about the very positive effects on our heart and all the systems in our body and our respiration, inflammation, wound healing from wounds, uh, lowering disease. So um, I, I want to start to make people more aware of that aspect of, uh, of the health aspect in golf. It's just the fact that our feet are on the earth a lot <laughs> and we get to be mm-hmm. out there, you know, in, in nature. So this is, I mean, we know that there are psychological benefits. We have the social aspect of it, but we actually have at a cellular level a very positive effect on our health by being out in nature. And, again, we have the biggest earth playing field in probably all of sports. Yeah, I, so I couldn't agree more. Thoughts for starters. <laughs> and let me just add a, a, a few other statistics here that a lot of people might not. And I'm going to put it in perspective. Um, you might wonder, well, how far does the average pro, and I'm talking about professionals on tour, uh, how much do they walk? Uh, it's estimated that the average tour pro uh, walks 319, we'll say 320 miles per season so you might ask yourself um how exactly far uh is 320 miles uh in in compared to other uh sports and other uh different functions uh that's the equivalent of 12 marathons with one and a half five k's left over uh 10,268 laps of an olympic pool uh 17,900 and 18 lengths of an NBA court. Uh, it's uh, roughly uh, 5,614 lengths of an NFL field and 14.7% of the Tour de France. Um, so it, it's quite a long distance. And just to visually kind of put that in perspective as well is I'm up in the northwest part of Florida, and, John, you're down in Orlando um, it's a little bit further. It's three, actually about 368 miles from where I live to where you live and it takes about five and a half hours to five and three quarter hours uh, to drive, um, assuming you're not speeding. So it's quite a ways. There's a lot of walking. And if you average that out, if you figure on an average round, they're walking about five miles uh, on an 18-hole uh, course, and again, obviously factoring in the, the undulations, that's um, roughly 10,000 steps around. So that's a lot of walking, and obviously, uh, as I mentioned, about 2,000 calories. So you're burning a lot of calories, uh, assuming you're able to walk. And even if you're not walking, you're still burning some calories with the actual golf swing uh, itself. Uh, anything that you want to add to that, uh, John, at all, in, as far as uh, being good for you, before I ask you your question? Uh, I'm going to tell you, you those statistics are fantastic, but what they leave out is the walk from the parking lot to the facility that leaves out the distance or potential distance between greens and tees, which at some facilities can be very long. Uh, It leaves out the extra walking after a round to the press tent which in sometimes I went to the PGA championship last year was a quarter of a mile away. Uh, they may be carted over there. Yeah. But all in all, it's a minimum of five miles. Uh, I yeah. would, I would venture to say it's probably closer to six to seven. Uh, and then the average everyday stuff they've got to get done. 
yeah, it's it's definitely a long walk, and I think that the statistics that they're they're referring to here is kind of an average, and it's probably more in line with uh, your average golfer out there as opposed to your touring professional. But yeah, it's definitely uh, a, a good long walk, and there's a lot of benefits. Uh, health-wise, as Jamie pointed out uh, just a few moments ago. Uh, Johnny, your question is I want to talk about, and this is an area uh, where really could go one of two ways, depending on your perspective, because I'm sure there's going to be some that are going to agree with this and some that aren't going to agree with it. Um, but golf is also one of the other benefits. It's actually good for your mind. As physical as golf can be, uh, many estimate 90% of the game is mental. And, of course, they're talking about uh, things like course management and, and understanding uh, your game. Uh, so in 18 whole round is basically one long mental exercise constantly making you think and focus uh on uh focusing you to stay focused on the task at hand so golf can also help relieve stress anxiety and even depression and uh, as i did for for jamie i'm going to give uh the folks a few quick stats uh to kind of back that up a little bit uh according to uh a group by um 2016 the average anxiety level uh, is 18.3% uh, for the average person. Uh, for golfers, it's 11.9%. Depression is, again, 15.1%. For most folks out there that are not uh, typically golfers, uh, golfers tend to have depression 8.7%. Um, stress, 258 a little bit closer in, in line is 22.5%. And panic attacks are 5.3 for the average. And golfers, uh, again, 3.0. So, um, again, I always take stats with a, with a grain of salt. But, um, John, what do you think about what you just heard? And as far as from a mental standpoint, some people may disagree that it can be very stressful. It can be a lot of anxiety. And, again, obviously, depending on your, your level. But overall, how, what are your thoughts when it comes to um, – how golf affects your mind. I can see both sides of the fence. That it can be very stressing, taxing, as well as uh, very soothing is a term I'll use with this. But I think what it ultimately boils down to is golf is probably the ultimate problem-solving game behind chess and cribbage. There's, there's not too many other things or games or, or activities out there that can challenge your mind to constantly solve a problem. And, and with that, when people are understanding, that's what golf's about. It's, it's beyond just the physical. What decision am I going to make as far as the club in my hand, the lie that I have, the environmental conditions that I have no control over, uh, the people that are surrounding me and what, what they are doing that I cannot control. Uh, there's other factors, but at the end of the day, the people who are on the brighter side of those stats are probably better at problem solving to begin with, which, which is probably what's creating anxiety for the person mm -hmm. who's, experiencing that anyway. I'm not a mental health professional, and I'm mm. certainly not Fran, your next guest, who's had a lifetime of research <laughs> with this. But right. what I've found over my years of teaching and being a professional athlete in another sport is that golf offers something totally different than other sports because we have time to think. In most other sports we participate in, 
never gives you time to think. And that's really the difference between golf and most any other sport that any other golfer has played throughout their lifetime. Taking that into effect, that time thought should be on solving the problems versus trying to create the problems. And I think that's when you're talking about two sides of the fence there, those are the two sides of the fence to me. Are you able to solve a problem or are you allowing the problems to take control of you? And I think also, um, Jamie, to to this point, is uh, particularly with our amateur golfers, we'll, we'll leave the professionals out because that's a different breed altogether. But, you know, for our amateur golfers, most of them go to the golf course, I'm sure, feeling a little more anxious and a little more anxiety um, because I think they forget to have fun. They go there with a lot of um, baggage, if you will. I've mentioned this before, um, you know, past bad rounds, um, you know, even uh, warming up on the range. Maybe they haven't been hitting it as well as they'd like to. So they kind of go with that baggage. So I can see where in a case like that, it's more uh, stressful. But I think if they go with a, a positive attitude that no matter what game they have that particular day, that they're going to go out and have fun and have a good time. And I think that's probably a little bit of how those stats came about is that I think if we go with the right positive attitude in, in how you play and, and approach the game, um, you're going to likely have a better result overall uh, emotionally. What do you think about that, Jamie? It's an interesting thing, whether golfers kind of stress more or stress less. (laughs) Um, I think that, you know, unfortunately, um, golfers stress more perhaps even when they're at the golf course than they do in other parts of their lives. I mean, uh, you know, it all depends. It's, It's so individual. But, um, you know, we, people encounter performance anxiety, right? We want to do well, and you've got people looking at you, and you've got a score, and that's, people kind of take their score as a reflection almost of them, you know, of, of their, their worth and their abilities. And in those ways, it can really start to stress, um, especially when things go a little bit awry or a little bit south. And I do think that we forget that it's a game that we, we play, mm-hmm. and it's important to do right. that. Um, unfortunately, people tend to you know drink a beer or whatever they're doing on the golf course to loosen up. And I think it's one of the things that I try to do, certainly, is to teach a way of playing that will give you better results by stressing less. It's kind of a program I have, actually, mm-hmm. stress less, stress for more, um, and to use a more peaceful way to hit the ball rather than, killing the ball and beating ourselves up with a really negative self-talk about, you know, so how bad we are, what idiots or jerks we are for a shot we made, a swing we made, <laughs> you know, it happens. Um, right. And uh, sure. so I think that, yeah, I think that, you know, learning to uh, be able to have the golf course be a place to stress less, to remember even when things aren't going so well and we start to stress a little bit or get unhappy that, Oh my God, you know, there's birds chirping, you're out in the fresh air. Uh, remembering that a, a, a day, some hours on the golf course are a lot better than at the office. Well, we're not at the office so much, but, you know, wherever else we are, we're, we're just mm. darn lucky to be out there. Um, mm-hmm. I think also that um, something happens on a golf course that I think is quite amazing, which is that we can be out there for two hours, say for nine holes or out practicing or certainly 18 holes, four or five hours. It's like we're in another world. Uh, I, it, it's such an altered experience of time so that I could be, I can go play golf for an afternoon or a morning and, and it feels like I've been on vacation for days. 
I, we get such an opportunity to step, you know what I'm saying, to step out of right. uh, the ordinary, ordinary stresses or ordinary uh, issues or concerns of our lives and to actually feel that we were away, we were in another world. And in a sense, we are in another world on a golf course, and that is very rejuvenating. That's a very healthy thing in and of itself so that without having to, take a big trip and, uh, you know, just short ways away wherever the golf course is and for a few hours where we really get to, to step out and to change kind of our, our whole consciousness. And I think that that is very healthy and it's de-stressing in and of itself. So, um, you know, I think that, I just think that it's important for golfers. We, we stress in the sense of any kind of desire to improve, to perform well, Everybody stresses. That's out there in golf uh, for sure. Uh, learning to have golf be a place that's that's really healthy that allows us to maybe you know blow a little steam off with a with a drive or you know uh, uh, it's emotional. You know you see the putt, it's like whoa, and all of a sudden you've had a huge uh, you know a huge emotional release. Yeah, it's been cathartic out there on the golf course. So you know these things are all good, and we have all those opportunities in golf and. If we can, I think, remember that phrase, make your golf club your health club, whether it's your actual club or the club where you are, the, the place you are, make that your health club. Make that be a place that's going to be a healthy, a healthy practice and a healthy place to be. I think it's very, very important. Well said. You know, just one more quick thing I, w- I want to mention, and then um, we'll move on to the, to the next question. And, and that is, you know, over the last uh, several years, um, both myself and, and of course, the uh, uh, co-host on the other show that I do, Women of Golf, on Tuesday mornings, um, Cindy Miller and I uh, have had an opportunity to interview um, a number of Symmetra Tour players. And it was interesting last season particularly. Um, many of them came on, uh, some first-time winners. And what was really interesting is a comment that they uh, many of them made, the same, almost verbatim, the same comment, and that was, you know, like many of the professionals in any sports, they're out there, they're grinding and they're working on their game and they're focusing on what the task at hand and so on and so forth. And they'd get so close, but yet would not kind of get over that hurdle. And then finally, one day they would kind of say to themselves, you know what, they'd get burned out a little bit. They're just, you know, chugging along the track as, you, as it were. And then all of a sudden they, they kind of said to themselves internally, you know what, I just need to come out here and just have some fun. Just enjoy the fact that I'm doing something that I love to do and the benefits of golf, some of which we're talking about tonight. And interesting enough, I think almost everyone that came on the show that had that same story the very next week when won the tournament. And I found that very, very interesting. And it goes to the point that what's going on a lot of times in your mind can dictate the results of any action that you do, not just on the golf course, but off. And it was just a very interesting thing because it wasn't just one or two girls. It was, I think, close to a half a dozen of them had the same experience. Um, again, literally word for word. And I found that very, very interesting because, uh, again, they were in a stressful situation playing tournament golf week in, week out against some of the best young ladies coming up uh, and heading towards the LPGA. And some of them were uh, former LPGA players who, who are, are, you know, were back on the Symmetra. And I found it very interesting that when they sort of released that part of their their mental approach, if you will, and not focus so much on having to do everything just perfect and just get out there and actually enjoy the experience, they were more relaxed. They they were able to focus on 
on just you know the simplest tasks while we're out there and not getting caught up in, in some of the hyperbole that happens sometimes uh, between the years. Uh, Jamie, I need to come back to you on this because um, you were piggybacking on, on Don's question. Um, the other thing that golf does is it helps you uh, um, make new friends uh, and business connections, uh, which I know you, uh, well, we all do, but uh, I know you know very well. Golf is a game filled with uh, certainly many friendly and, and interesting and successful people. Uh, and uh, quite often, if you show up at a golf course uh, with less than a, a foursome, which is typically what you play, uh, you'll often get paired uh, with others. So these people already have something in common with you is they have a love for the game. So uh, there are other ways to, to meet golfers too, including uh, signing up for tournaments or, or getting involved in, in even team events and things like that. But maybe just touch on a few of the benefits of, of the connections that can be made on the golf course that maybe some folks out there that are new to the game may not appreciate yet oh absolutely you know what what's so nice about golf is that you get to meet people let's say you're a single or there's two of you and you just show up at a golf course or a public course to play you typically get paired with another player or two so that they can fill out a foursome you spend good four hours with those people people connect through shared experience that's how we get bonded and playing around the golf is very bonding um, and that could be, again, with strangers. It could be with, uh, you know, friends that you get kind of closer with, um, who you plan to play golf with. Or maybe you uh, play and you're playing with a friend and they set you up with two of their friends and all of a sudden you're spending time with new people. Certainly at charity tournaments, at business events, at outings, there are uh, opportunities to meet new people. And, again, it's not just the kind of, I don't know, meet at, a, meet at a party, meet at a, I don't know, a bar, a social, a networking event, and you're kind of making small talk. No, you actually have this whole experience together that's real, that you are kind of being yourself, you're seeing others, you're getting a real experience of one another. I call them uh, in my business golf training the litmus test of golf. We really get to learn about our, uh, each other as people, as potential coworkers through being playing partners. And so in that sense, it's, you know, it's a mean, um, you know, it's a meaningful time that we spend together and a, a true bonding experience. So, you know, those are things that I think are so important in the social connection, the social relationships that we get to build through golf. And uh, they can be business relationships. They can be new friends. You have common interests. Um, you know, it's fun to, it's just, it's just so fun to experience each other in a round of golf, a round of golf, so much is like, uh, you know, life, right? So we've just had, we mm -hmm. really shared some real real life together and not just small talk and chit chat. And even if you are kind of making small talk and getting to know each other, you watch each other play golf. This is the real you. This is the real deal, right? And um, mm -hmm. so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a meaningful time together uh, as well as a fun time. So I think that, you know, these are, these are really wonderful aspects, uh, you know, parts of the social aspects of golf. Um, you know, I have a, a program, a business golf program, I call it where business meets the green. And so, you know, here we are out in the green, you know, the green of money, of deals, of whatever, of, you know, business, of, of uh, associations. Uh, and these are, these are just the opportunities that are so inherent in golf that ha where you have a substantial amount of time together and it's meaningful time and fun time. 
of course, the, and that's not to, we're not even including the 19th hole, right? <laughs> so, no. So we, got, we got all that time together, too, you know, um, having a few drinks or eating, spending time together. Um, you know, these are all, these are all just wonderful things uh, that go along with the social opportunities, I would say, of golf. Well, and that's the thing is, you know, from a, a personal standpoint, um, you know, there, there are great social advantages because you are spending a lot of time uh, with your with your foursome, and and even if it's a regular group that you're you know you've begun to play with, uh, it gives you an opportunity to, uh, you know, obviously enjoy uh, this great game, but it also gives you a, an opportunity to talk about many other things um, as you're walking. Uh, uh, you know, hopefully you're walking down the fairway, and if not, if you're in the cart, then whoever you're partnered with, you get a chance to. Uh, you know, to have some some interesting conversation along the way as you're uh, making your way to your next shot. And from a business standpoint, um, you know, I've I've always, you know, been attracted to to uh, business golf, if you will, for lack of better words. And <clears throat> excuse me, and that is because it creates so many opportunities. I mean, if you think about it from a business standpoint, where else do you get an opportunity? to spend that amount of time, again, if you're playing a full 18, you know, anywhere from four to five hours, uh, and that's not including, uh, you know, as you pointed out, Jamie, the 19th hole, um, with a prospective customer. Um, and you get to know that person. You get to know um, how they react to, uh, you know, uh, stressful situations. And, you know, are they kind of letting their hair down? Are they having fun? Are they, you know, and, and it's not about whether they're a good player or a great player. Obviously, that makes it more interesting if, if you're both, uh, you know, equally matched and, and you can have some fun along the way. Um, but it's about really uh, almost a bonding and, and an experience of, of getting out there and enjoying uh, each other's time together and, and getting to learn about one another on a personal level. Um, and it makes for much business, better business relationships, I think, in the long run than, you know, a 15 or 20 minute or even a 10 minute phone call. Uh, to a prospective client. So you get an opportunity to uh, see them at their best and, and even in some cases see them at their worst. So uh, I've always enjoyed well, that experience. And, right? Yeah. You Go know, ahead, uh, Jamie. Uh, another, another part of that and just how bonding the experience is, for example, in a, a charity golf tournament, it, you know, they're typically played as a team event, right? A scramble. And so mm-hmm. you've got your four or five partners on your team. And, Boy, that five hours, however long it takes out there, playing together as a team, pulling for each other, reading each other's putts, celebrating together. Um, somebody comes through, uh, you know, the hugs, the high fives, all that good stuff um, is, is just so bonding. And you feel so connected. If you Even playing one round in one charity tournament, I will see people a year or years later, and we're just bonded. It, it never goes away playing a team event, for example, um, pros, amateurs, we have a lot of uh, paired kinds of events where it's you and a partner, right? It might be an alternate shot. It might be a best ball. It doesn't matter. But, um, uh, and, you know, I, friends who I've, I've partnered up with, to this day, years later, we see each other or we write to each other on Facebook and we call each other partner, you know, partner. How you doing, partner? And mm-hmm. so there's <laughs> just, it, it's incredible the, the amount of bonding that can happen in a matter of a few hours just because, Golf is that that compelling, that riveting. <laughs> and when we play together right. and we're really working together uh, as a pair or as a group uh, to achieve a result and to go through all those experiences together, it, it's just a very strongly bonding, strongly connecting experience. And it, it never goes away. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, and you can make lifelong friends. I mean, obviously, you know, 
Uh, we can do things with with other sports, but with typically with other sports, whether it's baseball or football or you know basketball or what have you. Um, because of the environment, more often than not, you know, it's such a fast-paced game that you're you're involved in. It. You're you're busy watching where the ball's going. You're watching, you know, uh, players running the base uh, or what have you. And so the the opportunities for a more in-depth conversation don't typically happen at events like that because it's more, uh, you know, action-packed. Whereas golf, it's a slower-paced game, but it, it does involve you obviously to think much more uh, than many of the others. Um, that we, you know, that have been mentioned, but uh, it gives you, uh, again, a longer stretch, if you will, uh, during play to to be able to to get to know one another. So it's a great opportunity. John, my friend, I'm coming back to you. Um, this is one I think we can all, as we, uh, you know, move into our, our you know, uh, our, our later years, uh, the ability to play golf, uh, you know, as we age, um, it's the low impact sport compared again, compared to many of the others, meaning it causes uh, little stress or damage to the joints and muscles. And obviously there are exceptions to the rule. Some people do uh, sustain injuries, but generally it's not a high impact sport, the same as many others. So this makes it much easier to play throughout your uh, golden years, if you will. And and many elderly uh, people can comfortably play without worrying of extreme soreness or injury. Um, we're both in in the heart of that that area in Florida. Uh, many folks come down, uh, many snowbirds come down through the season, as they say, and and enjoy some great rounds of golf. And you know, in addition to um, our younger uh, generations, we see older generations out and enjoying and playing this great game. Maybe touch a little bit about that, and maybe share a story or two um, of some of the experiences you've seen with with some of your students that are in that category. Uh, I, I would say I, I can't agree more with with what you said overall as a, as a theme that you can play golf for a lifetime. And what's neat about golf from an athletic standpoint of view, you get to see the evolution of a human being from a aging and body standpoint of view, not necessarily from what they're capable of doing so much as as they lose capability, how they adapt. Uh, and, and how the brain and the body adapts to the aging process. There are certain ageless wonders out there that keep themselves mm-hmm. in really, really good shape. But then there's others that sedentary for the most part, except for their golf game. And yeah. they find ways to make it work. And, and that's the neat thing about it. The, the story that comes to mind most often, I've told it on the podcast before, um, I'll just I'll disguise his name to protect the innocent. I had a a 92 year old man come to me. Oh, this was probably seven eight years ago. Let's call him Ed, and he could not move. He just couldn't move. He was ready to give up golf. He had forgotten about the evolutionary process of ad- adaptation. He was just very stuck in his ways and and thought that he could still do things the way he did. Uh, very youthful in attitude and personality, uh, but he had some aging issues from a physicality standpoint of view. Mm-hmm. So reminding him of what he used to do, and I, and I, I call this the throw-the-ball drill, it, was a, it basically took an impact bag and, and asked him, hey, can you throw this to me? Can you throw it to me underhand with both hands as if you're going to make a golf move? 
and all of a sudden you could see the eyebrows go up. You could you could see the ticking of the brain going. Three days later, he added 100 yards to his drive just by getting a little bit of exercise, more so than he used to. But most importantly, going through this evolutionary slash adaptation process of understanding, yes, his body still could do this. But because golf can be sometimes complicated and frustrating, he was going about it in a way that had more to do with technicality of the club, this, that, whereas what I tried to remind him of is that his body could still work, that his core could Mm -hmm. still function, that he still had cross-connection going, and that with just some simple reminders to the body that no matter what the age you can still play the game. I work with some Parkinson's patients. I saw one today that I hadn't seen in a couple of years, and he's keeping himself really fit and doing everything he can. And when you watch a debilitating disease like that that right now has no cure and watch people mm-hmm. adapt to continue to play yep. the game, it's, it's an unbelievable sight. Well, let me, let me take that back. It's not so much unbelievable so much as it's a learning moment for me each and every time I see these individuals. Uh, it's, it is a game of a lifetime. It is something that you can play into your hundreds if you live that long. It's just a matter of being realistic of what you physically can do and remind yourself of that on a daily basis. Hey, I can do this and show yourself that. You know, it's interesting. Um, one of the other, uh, you know, coaches that has been on the program over the years, uh, Clint Wright, who's, um, you know, been a, another favorite on the show. And, and um, you know, he often has talked about how really at a certain point it becomes more about maintenance than necessarily uh, progression. For instance, you know, obviously when you're in your 20s and 30s and maybe even in your 40s, um, you know, your abilities are certainly much different than when you get into your 60s, 70s, and 80s and beyond. And I think sometimes just a shift of focus and more of maintaining what you've got um, and and not try to um, necessarily work on gaining more distance, not to say that you shouldn't always try, but I think sometimes just a shift in focus. And his, you know, he's talked about on the show many times that his game has gotten to a point um, where it's more about maintaining what he the levels that he's gotten to as opposed to try to increase and 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 obviously if it happens it happens but um, and I think sometimes it's perspective um, but, you know depending on what the player's looking for and again it, it's not to say that there aren't ways that um, again some in that in that you know older demographic that may um, be in better health uh, might be able to pursue some of those goals a little bit more easily than than somebody that's not doing a lot outside of golf. So it, it really depends, and I think you know you, you have to go back to that old adage, you know, young at heart. And I think if you, you know, if you have a good attitude and if you feel good and, and take care of yourself and get out there, um, maybe you're not going to shoot 75 anymore, or maybe not even 85 um, as you once did, um, but you're still going to be able to go out and enjoy and have fun in the game. And I think that's really um, what it boils down to: is it's just a great experience. Um, and you can get a lot of joy out of your golf game at, at really any age, and that's not as easily said about so many other sports. Um, Jamie, I'm going to give the last question to you. You kind of touched on it very early on in our discussion tonight, 
and uh, maybe you can uh, share a little bit more. And that is uh, our, our fifth benefit uh, is experiencing the outdoors and while at the same time kind of helping to protect nature. Uh, perhaps the most beautiful and amazing part of golf is where, as you pointed out, where it takes place. And unlike uh, any other sport, uh, golf requires many acres and, and uh, in some cases miles of land, depending on a, if it's a large resort. Um, uh, to play, and most courses offer an abundance of trees, animals, and other wildlife that can be enjoyed. Uh, golf courses provide habitats for animals, and plant species uh, are able to thrive in many of them. And I think that what's interesting is over um, the last you know, decade or so particularly, I think golf courses have started to become more conscious of the environment and are using uh, less chemicals, um, than maybe what they once did in, in many cases, uh, or certainly leaning towards that now and finding new ways to keep the, the course in good shape without having to necessarily damage uh, the environment. So um, what do you think about that? What do you think about the outdoors and, and that perspective of golf? You touched on that. Maybe you can expand a little bit more. I think that the outdoor perspective is, is huge, and I'm happy to see that there is increasing consciousness uh, in the golf industry, golf superintendency, to have what we would call more of a green approach to uh, to golf uh, in the sense of, for example, uh, a company I work with called EcoGolf. They are based in the Midwest, and they've developed biodegradable tees instead of, um, you know, wood tees and all. Biodegradable made from uh, soy, from corn, that are more friendly, that are, um, you know, biodegradable. And so, you know, to just, that, that's something small, uh, you know, in terms of teas and things like that. Um, but uh, rather than toxic fertilizers that then, say, pollute the, or the water, um, you know, water sources and rivers and things that that water drains into, to um, l- looking for new ways to be more, more green, you know, more ecological in terms of golf course maintenance. Um, and I think that that's important. The effect of green spaces, I think, is really huge. There have been in recent years, especially since the kind of depression of 2007 and 8, when we lost golf courses, and I think to this day we still are losing some, we actually lose green space. And those get paved over, they turn into housing developments and subdivisions, and that's a real loss, you know, in terms of habitat for animals, green space that we can be in. I would like to see, I mean, I understand why people can't go walking and bike riding around golf courses because it's it disturbs the golfers and it can be dangerous in terms of errant golf balls and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I know that especially late in the day or super early in the morning, people do use golf courses to take a walk and to just kind of get out in nature, um, be in some green grass. But I think that it's important that we are able to see our golf courses as, as almost nature preserves. And there are in fact golf courses that are nature preserves, you know, um, mm-hmm. which is, is right. really terrific and are, and are very conscious of being uh, habitats for, you know, different animals and birds and ducks and rabbits and uh, deer and, you know, that sort of thing, which is just so wonderful. So, you know, I think that it's a really important function and the fact that we do get outside and more people, there's an initiative of course, to walk more. And interestingly with COVID, mm-hmm as there's been less opportunity to, for people to kind of pile up into golf carts, right? It's like one at a time, more people are walking again. And I think that they're finding right. they're enjoying it and that it's, it's healthier. I wanted to say just a little something else in terms of, um, you know, the health benefits. There's obviously the outdoors as we're talking about, but um, about maintaining 
as you get older, 50, 60, 70, 80, mm-hmm. maintaining your health, uh, your flexibility, your strength, your distance. Um, you know, you may not be hitting it farther, but I do want to say this. It is possible for, uh, and I, I've certainly worked with many people in their getting up into their 70s, 80s, even 90s, who by tending to their fitness and being outdoors and breathing fresh air, stretching, being able to expand their extension down the line in their back swing or in their follow-through, stretching out the elbows, <laughs> being able to rotate mm-hmm. their spine a little bit more, stand and uh, have a stable stance. I have actually, I, I have seen golfers and like to help golfers, especially, you know, as we're aging, to maintain for sure and actually even get better. It's, it's just such a thrill mm-hmm. to watch someone go, wow, I'm, I'm turning back time a little bit. I actually picked up another 5, <laughs> 10, 20 yards. And it makes sense um, as we continue to uh, you know, have our bodies be, be very functional and to be strong and to be loose and to have flexibility. And the balance is really, really very important to prevent falls. Uh, my father, um, now blessed memory, just died at almost 98 mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, but he became my golf mm-hmm. student at age 80, and he just steadily improved for a decade until mm-hmm. he fell off his bicycle answering his cell phone. <laughs> um, and, and that's how he broke his hip. I mean, you got to give the guy credit. Mm-hmm. He was almost 90 years old. But, I mean, he improved for 10 years just by improving his flexibility right. and, uh, and, and being out there on the golf course with friends, in the fresh air, in the grass, making that earthing contact. Uh, it was just incredible for maintaining his health and even improving it. I saw him go, I mean, at age 86, I think, he uh, he made some blueprints and built a little apartment building. Who does that from blueprint at age 86? Um, so, you know, it's, it's just really fantastic uh, to, to see that, that that can happen. Well, and, and again, you raise um, some really great points. You know, I think a lot of people, particularly people that have never played the game before, you know, they're more often than not, their exposure is what they see on TV. And, and obviously they're seeing, um, in most cases, um, their exposure to it is at an elite level. And so, you know, it, it, it doesn't look attainable and it, and it doesn't really look like a whole lot of fun um, because it, it's very highly competitive. The structure is, is much different than what they might experience. Um, so I, I always encourage people to, you know, get out there and, and uh you know, even just go, uh, you know, find a, a maybe a local course, um, you know, a, a municipal course or um, even a, a, an executive style or par three courses. Sometimes it's referred to that's not as challenging and as difficult if you've got one in your area. And you don't even have to go out and play 18 holes. Um, a lot of times you can just go out. They have a lot of great par three uh, nine hole courses. And, uh, and, you know, get together, obviously, with a, with a professional. You don't necessarily have to do that right away, but you can go to a driving range and, and uh, you know, rent a club or two and, and just, uh, you know, hit some balls. And then when you feel, hey, this is something I'd like to try, then that's when I would encourage you to, you know, to get with an instructor and, 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 and get to learn the game at a, at a little bit better pace. But, um, you know, the, there are obviously many other benefits that we could, we could go on for days, but these are really, I think, five you know key areas and, and key benefits that I think a lot of people don't fully understand. Um, again, if they've never played golf or been involved in golf, that are, are, are benefits. Um, you know, as you guys uh, both pointed out very eloquently tonight, um, that people can can get out and enjoy and, and have some fun. And uh, during you know this difficult time right now with the pandemic. 
golf has been one of the very, very few sports uh, and games that uh, many people have, have um, and I'm sure you both have probably in some level have experienced what I'm about to say, but um, many people who have never played the game before uh, just simply, you know, uh, were able to get out and do something. And, uh, you know, golf was about the only game in town, so to speak. So, you know, many uh, coaches and, and teaching pros that I've had on the show and talked to uh, have had that experience where many people have come out and um, just because they, they need to get out and want something to do and, and golf has afforded them that opportunity. So it's introduced a lot of new people uh, to the game and hopefully uh, that will continue on uh, as the, the months and weeks and, and years uh, continue on. But um, guys, I want to thank you for, uh, I think, a very interesting uh, discussion tonight in the Coach's Corner panel. And as always, I'm going to give you uh, both an opportunity to uh, let the folks know where they can reach you and uh, if they want to reach out and, and have any questions for you. And if you've, uh, we've got a few extra minutes, so if, if there's anything uh, coming up in, in your neck of the woods or, or that you're going to be involved with that you want to plug, uh, by all means, uh, take this opportunity. And uh, Jamie, we'll go with you first again. Well, thank you, Ted, and I'm so glad that this was the subject of, uh, of our Coach's Corner tonight because the, the health aspects in, in all its dimensions, psychologically, uh, you know, mentally, physically, uh, spiritually, and, and all these ways of golf is just so tremendous, so um, it's been fun to talk about. Um, people can reach me through my website, which is www.kiaigolf.com. Uh, another way to get there, same website, is The Centered Way, C-E-N-T-E-R-E-D, thecenteredway.com. So let's take you to the same place. And I'm also reachable, I always say this, by phone. I actually like to talk, as you can tell. <laughs> so, um, and I like to make that personal contact. So 760-492-4653, which is 760-492-GOLF, uh, or Jamie mm-hmm. at kiigolf.com, Facebook, LinkedIn, and I do have a wonderful program that's coming up July 23rd to the 30th. It'll be four days out of those seven. I am doing a next Kiai Golf Mastery School. We did one in May. It was virtual. Uh, and it's two hours each day online on Zoom. And we actually get out. We swing. We do all sorts of things. But it's a complete mastery school uh, coming from principles where we really learn about being centered, grounded, balanced, uh, relaxed, power all of these things, and then uh, really using your full body and your lower to upper body. A lot of golfers don't learn or or pay enough attention to their lower body, Um, and it makes a huge difference. Then I go through my whole uh, fitness program, Make Your Golf Club Your Health Club, patterning the golf swing, bringing in martial arts mastery. I am a psychologist, so a lot of body-mind, holistic approach. Um, uh, So there's a whole – one of the sessions is on – uh, course management, but mind-body management, so mastery there, and basically uh, reaching our what I call teaching, learning, and playing potential. So uh, we have pros and amateurs uh, in the golf school, and I really encourage anybody who's interested to go to my website, get in touch with me. Um, I do have a, a special code for $20 off, uh, which is LPGA2020, and uh, that is really the, the greatest thing that someone could do, I think, right now. Um, and, and, to, and with me would be to take the Kiai Golf Mastery School. And of Very course, good. I do, I, do I, virtual, would... I do virtual lessons and uh, just did a, a talk for a competitive senior uh, women's group that was wonderful. That's up on YouTube now. And some people you know, from St. Andrews, Canada, and the States. 
uh, a lot of great stuff going on, and I'm very happy to work with uh, varying groups. And interestingly enough, virtual virtual training has been very, very helpful for people, and I've, I've kind of been getting a mastery at that over the last four months. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all, been, I think we've all, uh, Jamie, been kind of becoming masters at the at the virtual uh, yeah. uh, game, if you will. Um, John, what about yourself? Uh, first, share the you know, where the folks, the best way to reach out to you and, and uh, if you've got anything that uh, you want to uh, send out there, a plug of any kind, uh, by all means, go ahead. Thanks, Ted, again. Always an honor to be on. Uh, Jamie, great to hear all the things you're doing and very insightful comments. Uh, John, John Hughes Golf, where John Hughes Golf, whether it's social media, regardless of the channel that you're partial to, uh, not a lot going on, but right now that I can talk about, but I'm hoping by September 1, I've got a lot of really cool things to launch. And it goes hand in hand with some of the things I put out in April as COVID went out, some virtual lessons and such. I am available for that through my website. There's a link that you can reach me that way. Uh, doing quite a bit of that now and always welcome to do more and hope your listeners take me up on the offer. And don't forget, you can always, uh, if you're interested in a good read, um, John, of course, has been part of the Golf Tips magazine family uh, for a number of years and uh, most recently, um, since I've taken over, has put out uh, a couple of great uh, um Tips, if you will, uh, part of his milestone series for 2020. Uh, the July-August issue is still at the newsstands. Um, so get out there and, and pick up a copy. And the easiest way to see it is uh, it's got a great uh, sort of nostalgic picture, if you will, or photo of, of the king of golf himself, Mr. Arnold Palmer. Um, so check that out. Uh, or uh, if you'd rather uh, get a subscription, go to golftipsmag.com. And uh, just click on subscription. You can subscribe. Uh, six issues. It's a bi-monthly magazine. You can get six issues for fourteen ninety-seven. It's a great deal. So uh, get out and do that, and uh, you'll find some great articles and tips in there from from uh, Master PGA Professional John Hughes. Guys, thank you very very much. As always, it's a pleasure. And uh, please continue to stay safe out there, and get out there and enjoy the game, and and uh, get out there and do what you guys do best, and that is to help others uh, get enjoyment out of the game as well. Thank you both very much. Thanks, Thank Ted. you, Ted. Thank you, John. And, uh, yeah, let's just keep playing. Keep swinging. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, that was uh, John Hughes and Jamie Leno-Zimron, uh, both on the Coach's Corner panel, uh, both a, cr- a couple of great professionals. Uh, always honored to have them on the show. And uh, they will be back again on a future panel discussion, I'd like to mix it up every uh, every week. So uh, we have some different folks uh, coming on the show and, and different discussions, of course. But uh, great topic tonight. Um, you know, a lot of great benefits to the game. We hit on a few of them tonight. And uh, for those of you that have never played the game before, I strongly suggest that you uh, reach out to uh, any of the uh, PJ or LPJ professionals in your area. And uh, you can uh, maybe... Uh, in some cases, you can sit down with them. You might have to, of course, social distance, but you can get out there and, and meet with them or maybe get out to your local course and, and talk to them or talk to them on the phone and just kind of, you know, fill things out, uh, ask a, a couple of questions, and and uh, they'll be able to set you up and, and help you uh, get out there and enjoy this game. 
All right, my very special guest tonight who uh, is going to be joining me here uh, shortly uh, is Dr. Fran uh, Pirazzolo. He is a, a neuroscientist uh, and sports psychologist. Uh, he uh, has uh, unique credentials, training and training and experience in the study of leadership and talent development. Uh, he completed a comprehensive uh, interdisciplinary PhD program at the University of Chicago and University of Rochester, uh, combining uh, neuroscience training at the Center for the Brain Research uh, Neuropsychology training from the Department of uh, Psychology and training in developmental psychology and education from the School of Education. Uh, he has held uh, professorships at the University of California in Los Angeles, uh, also the University of Minnesota Medical School and the Baylor College of Medicine, uh, where he served as chief of the neuropsychology service. Uh, he was the founding editor of an international scientific journal, uh, Developmental uh, Neuropsychology, and has published over 300 uh, scientific articles, 14 books, and he works uh, in sports coaching and has been uh, extensive and exceptional at. Uh, and you might also uh, remember him. He's uh, been very active in other sports besides golf. He won four World Series rings as the mental skills coach, uh, for the New York Yankees from 1996 to 2002, uh, was mental skills coach for the Houston Astros from 1988 to 95, and the Texas Rangers uh, from 2009 to 2011, uh, coached in the National Football League for the Houston Texans uh, in uh, from 02 and 06, and uh, has carried a sports uh, psychologist teaching credential on the Professional Golfers Association or PGA Tour uh, for over three decades. Uh, and many, many other uh, great accolades, uh, really too many to, to mention them all, but uh, those are just a few. And uh, as I wait for uh, Dr. Perizzolo to, to come on, um, we will uh, get into a great discussion. And he's certainly an expert in his field, uh, to put it uh, quite mildly. And uh, I see that he is here. So let me welcome my very special guest, Dr. Fran Perizzolo. Good evening, Fran, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. Hi, Ted. How are you? Uh, I'm doing very well, sir. How are you doing this evening? Great. It's good to uh, make your acquaintance. I've heard a lot of good things about you and your podcast. Well, I appreciate that very much, and uh, I'm very honored and, and happy to have you this evening. And I thought I would start off with, I think, something that from from my side of the game, if you will, I always kind of wanted, you know, we we always hear about, uh, you know, sports psychologists and kind of what they do and what their role is in the game. And I've always wondered from your perspective, when you're in front of an athlete, in this case, obviously a golfer, what are you looking for and what's going through your head as you prepare to help with their performance? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I guess, you know, in a, in a sort of classical excuse me, problems with the voice today, um, in a clinical psychological sense, um, you're really just trying to, you know, get to know the player and see what his issues are, um, see where he's invested maybe in some heuristics that just don't work um, and just see, you know, how many misconceptions he's mm-hmm. laboring with and then try try to match the right sort of training um, 
but it has to be grounded, Ted, in a real, you know, other centeredness to your, your motivation has to be to help the player um, Mm -hmm. and not necessarily to, you know, generate your own ideas about the way things work. And if he would only do this and this, you know, he'd be number two in the world or whatever. So it's really just trying to get a good understanding about the person, his little bit about its development, how he plays the game, how he learns, um, and how he performs under pressure. Great, great points. Let me ask you, uh, I guess, sort of a follow-up to that. Um, obviously, you've worked um, through a, a myriad of, of different uh, sports, um, from um, obviously uh, baseball through to football and, and of course, uh, golf as well. When you're dealing with tour athlete or professional athlete, as opposed to if you were to look at an amateur golfer, besides the obvious physical differences in their play, do they pretty much think the same when it comes to their approach to the game, whatever it may be, whether it's golfer or not? Uh, Or what are some of the differences? Why are the pros so much better mentally on the golf course than the amateurs? What are they doing differently that the rest of us aren't? Well, I think, you know, the successful professionals have learned to, you know, sort of balance the uh, importance of mechanics and the physical part um, mm. with the mental part. You know, it, you don't really hear a whole lot about, you know, changing swings and, you know, if I could only right. do this or that at the highest levels, you, you hear about, you know, I, I need to manage myself better. I need to, you know, be kinder to myself, um, you know, do some things that, you know, we're hearing about from other successful players. And the the amateurs, by and large, seem convicted about making swing changes, you know, one after another. And they seem to think that there's some magic in, um, you know, having this swing versus that swing. And in spite of the fact that they can turn the television set on and see that, you know, you watch – the top 10 players, you know, nine of the 10 swings are different. Um, right. So it's just hard to, you know, conclude that, you know, one swing is better than another or it's, you know, it, it achieves more success. Um, you know, I've learned over the years um, from my very first mentor, Ernie Davis, who was uh, the first black Heisman Trophy winner, you know, you really have to uh, lift up others and not be self-conscious and not uh, allow yourself to think that, um, you know, what happens to you is, you know, so crucial and tragic and uh, all that, that, you know, you get limited by, um, you know, your repetitive banging that goes on in your head about, I got to do this, I got to do that. Very, very interesting. You know, I've always felt, and particularly at the amateur level, 
and I've I've kind of used this phrase in 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 the past in explaining it is that I would equate it to going to the airport. You know, you you drag your 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 luggage or your baggage to the airport, and do you find more so than at the professional level that many amateurs do the same thing when they go to the golf course that they're bringing baggage from past bad rounds or even bad holes that they're bringing it into their game and that sometimes causes a lack of of good performance on the golf course what do you think about that yeah that's an interesting concept and it's certainly true you know we're carrying around these voices in our heads that Mm -hmm. under pressure you know they express themselves they're they're the arbiter of standards you know like and they make us feel self-conscious you know you don't want to hit it right because you know the water is there you know right you you don't like food 80 you you know all these things are going through your head and and modifying your your approach uh, and causing this you know great shift internally so, so that you're just basically you know listening to these voices instead of competing, playing, having fun, and challenging yourself. Would it be a fair statement to say that many amateurs um, not necessarily talk, but think themselves out of a good game? Well, certainly, and, and you know, professionals do as well. Um, sure. And most, of it, I think, could be related to what we just discussed, you know, these right. spontaneous expressions of what you got to do now, um, what you don't want to do, who's watching, you know, the sort of what we call hot cognitive states um, because you're motivated and because people are watching and because you, you know, really want the trophy or to be known as one of the best players in the city or whatever it is. Um, you know, you're you're bombarded by these voices and you have, to, you know, what I think the great professionals learn to do is to quiet those things down and maintain their focus on playing the game. Mm-hmm. Fran, you, you describe and, you know, in, in all sports, um, a, a, the rage to master, if you will, and its role in the lives of, you know, um, exceptional or, or high caliber players. Do you think the desire to master the game um, is why some players are more dominant in golf than other players? For instance, Tiger Woods compared to uh, Luke Donald, as an example, or um, a lesser caliber player out on the PGA Tour. Um, do you think that desire is more prevalent in somebody like a Tiger Woods or even, um, you know, a Nick Faldo or some of the others that, that really have taken it to a high, high level? Uh, and if so, why? Yeah, for sure, Ted, um, that observation has been made by, you know, many great scientists and, and, and non-scientists for that matter, that the people who seem to get to the top easiest anyway are, those who are focused on the skills and how to improve those things and they don't tolerate that, you know, they can't master 
technical skills. And so they're constantly challenging themselves to, you know, improve their skills um, in, a, in a mastery sense, you know, like trying to, uh, you know, perfect the, um, the way they do things and um, narrow the, you know, the width of their errors. Um, and they, you know, they are focus less on, you know, what others are doing or that, mm-hmm. you know, almost pathological need to beat others, to judge yourself by the way others are, have played or are playing. Um, those players tend to, uh, I won't say that they don't achieve uh, their great potential, but, you know, there's just too much baggage with it. There's too much mm-hmm. negativity and feeling bad. And again, the constant comparison uh, and the feeling right. that somehow you did something wrong because this guy went out and shot 62 and, you know, you shot 69. So, yeah, yeah I, I it, the answer is the, is the common, you know, psychological uh, characteristic of, of really great performers at, at anything. You know, it's very interesting that you say that, and, and I use Tiger again as an example. I can remember uh, very early on in Tiger's career um, when he was really at a very high peak uh, in his play and sort of proving your point. And I can remember he would sometimes say in, in his media reports, you know, that um, even though he shot a, uh, an incredible score, he didn't feel in his mind that he was playing his A game. And yet, in other instances, he'd be out and would actually score worse than that day, but would have the opposite reaction and felt that he was playing his A game. How do you explain a player like that that can look at it from two different perspectives, um, not not score very well, but still feel that they're playing at the, the highest level that they're capable of playing at that particular time, and then on the flip side, score extremely well, but not feel that they played the best. What do you think is going through their mind? And, and as a sports psychologist, if you were having a conversation similar with, with say, a player like Tiger Woods, what would you deduce, if you would, from, from that analogy that he's made? Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, the, the intuitive understanding that mm. golf does not give us clear feedback. You know, you and I could hit the exact same shot, you know, that nips a tree and mine goes out of bounds and yours, you know, bounces left and down the hill and you've got a 350-yard drive. Um, but yet, you know, there really was no difference in the mastery of the, that particular right. swing. Um, it, you know, and it's um, it's a little bit disillusioning to see how much some players are depending upon what they think science is. For example, on the greens, the ball is rolling across an irregular surface. The grass is growing, sometimes in many different directions. There are spike marks, there are footprints and all that, and you really can't, you know, certainly you should be able to make a two-footer, but um, 
you know, when some of these players get so upset about flipping out a 35-footer, you know, as if they deserved it, it, um, it doesn't really, you know, embrace what, the kind of thing you're talking about, Ted, that um, right. you should be judging yourself on the basis of your previous mastery and how you did and how you felt, you know, whether you felt like, again, like, you were distracted by these voices uh, or what others were doing. That's not really a, a, a good performance. So I think, again, I think people like Jack Nicholas had a bout right. of optimal attitude about these things. He was not trying to beat others. He was not judging himself, you know, uh, how others did versus how he did. He just, was very self-contained and tried to hit the shots that he, uh, you know, knew he could. And if he didn't, he, you know, he went to work. And Mm -hmm. um, he also managed his memory better than others. Um, And by that, I mean, you often hear that he has never admitted to like three putting on the last hole to, loser tournament and and i think he's being very sincere he learned to let that go and not what we call practice it that is keep thinking about oh if i had only done this if i had only two parted i would have won or whatever what a tragic thing that you know enhances the memory of that failure so it's like Mm -hmm. a practice effect you're you're, uh, so managing your you know, memory, um, the consolidation and how it, you know, you, if you keep thinking about these things, it, it's going to impair your performance and, for the future. So, um, you know, there's, there, there's a lot to be said for, you know, a clean um, and clear processing of what you've done and whether it matches the model in your head and, and your own mastery criteria, you know. Mm-hmm. So if Jack's trying to start the ball um, on a, you know, a, a grooved sort of, uh, you know, shot pattern that starts out two degrees to the right and, you know, fades two more degrees, um, he's not going to be happy with himself if he starts it on a, you know, four degrees left and, and, and it slices, you know, 35 yards. That's not what he was trying to do. Um, right. And so his, his, you know, management of that um, was just so superior to others. You know, there were no, as far as I know, you know, no bouts of pouting and throwing clubs and, you know, vulgarities. Um just say, okay, I'm filing this away, or I'm not filing this away. I don't need that. That's too too much of a burden. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it's interesting that you um, talk about Jack Nicholas because, you know, when you compare him to so many other players over the years, uh, you know, his, his overall game, uh, many have, you know, obviously critiqued his short game, um, compared to others on the tour at the time, 
um, and you know would often suggest that he was not necessarily the best ball striker on the tour, but yet his mental game um, was really uh, and has been really unmatched um, throughout the, the decades. And it's just interesting to show when you do a comparison with amateur golfers, how many really don't sharpen that, that mental game and spend so much time on the physical game when you draw that, that comparison between really arguably uh, certainly one of, if not the greatest player of the game of golf was not the best physical part of his game, but had the strongest mental part. Why do you think so many players, uh, and I'm talking amateur players at this point, spend so much time on the physical part of the game and negate the mental side and, and sort of play it down a little bit? What are your thoughts on that? Those are great points, Ted, and I'm not really certain why that is, but there's, you know, an obvious, um, you know, narrative that um, the way to the top is through, you know, perfecting your your swing. Um, Mm. And, you know, so many of us get caught up with that and then keep bouncing around. You know, if I go to this teacher, (laughs) you know, what that guy's doing. Um, whereas, you know, in general, going back to something you said before, if we recall that Tigers had four different swings with almost equal mastery or success with all the different Mm -hmm. ones, which tells you something about, you know, the guy. And, and as you said before, Ted, he changed because he was unhappy with certain patterns. He, you know, right. he was using hands too much. Um, you know, he couldn't hit this shot as effectively as he wanted to. So he moved to something else. So it, it you know, in his case, it clearly wasn't, you know, a, a matter of taming this swing in these positions. Um, it was very much about how, far ahead of most other professionals he was in, you know, the management of his mental game. Um, You know, it's probably the case that he was, you know, more self-dependent and, you know, insisted on, um, you know, a good cognitive understanding of what he was doing and an explanation from his teacher of the, of the time. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, these themes are fascinating to me and yet, uh, you know, we, when we listen to commentators and other mm-hmm. experts, they're, they're not really telling us, uh, you know, they're sort of seat of the pants, you know, use of, <laughs> Heuristics that seem seem right, you know. Right. Yeah, he's, he's winning because he fades the ball now. He's winning because he. Not. Right. Yeah, there's a there are definitely in in, in announcing and, and particularly in I guess with all sports, but particularly in golf, there's a lot of um, I, I would hate to say educated guesses, but uh, guesses would be a, a better analogy, I think. Um, uh, I think that's what, what many of them do, unfortunately. Let me ask you an interesting uh, 
question. We've, we've heard this over the years. Many players have, have sort of fallen into this category uh, and experienced the, the yips in golf, if you will. Um, some believe, and I've heard people come out and say, uh, players as well. I remember Ian Baker Finch years ago uh, developed that in, in, in his putting um, and said that you know his nerves sort of got the better of him and that sort of caused the, the yips in golf. Is that true? Uh, not necessarily with him, but as a general rule? Or, or what's the science behind the yips? Well, some of that is still to be worked out, Ted, but I think the the evidence coming from neuroscience uh, is something that I've been you know, trying to point out for 30 years. First of all, from studies of the dystonias or you know, movement disorders that sort of have very little explanation, um, you know, what we put together was that, you know, there's a certain genetic component um, and there's also an overwork or overuse phenomenon working here. The more you do blocked and mass practice on a task where you're using, and this is the key thing, the same muscles to both control shall we say, the angular um, route to the ball and the force parameters. So, and this is, you know, easily understandable with respect to putting because generally, you know, again, we're, we're holding on, you know, with this grip that we have and we're making different motions depending on how hard we need to hit it and where we think we need to start it. And at some point, there's a sort of a burnout factor where your brain says, hey, I, I can't do this. You know, I, I started um, as a major league baseball coach in uh, 1988 with the Houston Astros, and um, I learned a great deal from people like Nolan Ryan. But then I had a... Um, a you know, a near Hall of Fame player who was the third baseman, Ken Campanetti, who tragically mm -hmm. left us a few years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But he he had troubles throwing to first base. Um, not, you know, with the, you know, when he's playing, you know, four paces behind third base. And he would throw rockets over there. He was widely regarded to have the best infield throwing arm in baseball. But the the and you know I got some undue praise for what we did with Chuck Knobloch when I was with the New York Yankees. Um, uh, and if you think about the people who get the yips in uh, mm -hmm. baseball, are almost exclusively third baseman, second baseman, first baseman, catchers and very infrequently um, pitchers. Pitchers have trouble, mm -hmm. classic trouble, throwing to first base because they have to modulate those two things. You know, they don't, mm -hmm. you know, they have a good operating program for throwing a fastball and a changeup and a splitter and all that because they have rehearsed the, the force factor with the angular uh, factors, 
But when the ball is dribbling down the third baseline, uh, you know, a player wants to react, wants to get the ball, and then throw sort of using the automaticity that he has developed in his practice, but he can't because now he's judging how hard to throw it and whether to, you know, change arm angles to change. And you see the craziest thing in baseball, you know, with pitchers who haven't walked a guy in three weeks, you know, have ground ball hits them and they're, you know, they have forever to throw it at first base, which is a risk factor. And they'll throw it, you know, into the stands. Um, and this is because, again, that um, the fact that the task is asking, asking us to regulate both, um, you know, the force factors and the angular, you know, parameters. And if you think mm-hmm. again about the, the um, putting, um, we're seeing so many players freeze angles with, you know, uh, you know, putting the right hand on there in a way that it's only sort of holding on. It's not like rotating the club. It's only sort of pushing. And so it resolves the yips. And, um, you know, what, going back to what I did with Ken Caminetti was to tell him to, you know, let's forget about this. Let's just throw rockets over there. Don't hurt anybody, but and he did. And people yeah, thought it was, you know, strange that you know he's blowing away Jeff Bagwell over there. But um, you know, he became a what four or five time All Star and MVP player um, just doing that because now he no longer has to worry about you know the, the force parameters. They're already pre-programmed. And he doesn't quote, have to think about how to do this. Brian, let me ask you. Can, um, can you I'm sorry. Right no, so please go ahead and finish your thought. Go ahead and finish your thought. Well, I, I simply said that I confuse you enough there. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I found it very interesting. And uh, it probably explains a lot of my problems I had playing baseball. I wish I had a. I'd have known you sooner than maybe you could help me with mine. Um, let me ask you, you you've obviously, as, as I mentioned before you came on, I uh, let the listeners, you know, um, know a little bit about your background and, and you've sort of, uh, you know, brushed across it very briefly here just now, but obviously you have extensive experience uh, in, in other major league sports, baseball, and, and obviously in the NFL and, and so forth, uh, in addition to golf. Um, and, Somewhere along the line, you realized that you had a skill um, for what you do. When did you become aware of that? When do you feel there was a turning point in your life where you said, this is something I know I can help people with? Um, Yeah, that will come in a few years, I think. Um, I, you know, I, I grew up, um, you know, playing numerous sports and baseball, mm-hmm. uh, football, wrestling. Um, and, you know, I was just in an environment that was very sort of playful, but yet serious about, you know, your personal convictions about being as good as you could be. 
And mm. um, so I, I had aspirations to play, which is probably quite silly, to play professional football, uh, which I ended up doing for two years, but not all that successfully. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I felt like I was deeply uh, immersed in sports. Um, again, I would say, you know, that my own uh, family influences, um, but also the great fortune of, uh, you know, spending summers and, and other times with Ernie Davis who was uh, just a, a beautiful human being. Um, listeners too young to remember him. Uh, mm. You know, he was the first black uh, Heisman Trophy winner from Syracuse University and he never played a down of professional football. He was, he was drafted by the Browns uh, into this what would be the same backfield with Jim Brown, whose records he beat. And it would have been mm-hmm. a magical thing except for the fact that he contracted leukemia and died without ever playing a down in, in football, uh, professional mm. football. Anyway, he was just a a man with such incredible convictions, uh, spirituality, other-centeredness. Um, I, I, in the summer programs that I was in, I was often the only white person and I would get, you know, not always chosen too quickly uh, for different teams and stuff. And he would correct that. You know, like he would, he saw the discrimination, and you know, he would intervene mm. and tell me how to handle it and all that. Well, then I just watched right. how he handled his his life. So I think, you know, those influences were important, um, mm-hmm. but then you know, other sort of accidental things. So I never, I didn't play golf growing up, uh, nor as a young adult. I was at the, um, on the faculty of the University of Minnesota Medical School. And uh, a friend called and said, hey, um, I know you know Joey Sindelar, um, and he's playing in the Big Ten Championship at the University of Minnesota. Do you really mean if you could go over and walk to them and um, you know, I'm not doing anything in sports psychology at that point. I'm a neuropsychologist. Um, and uh, I, I thought, yeah, this, you know, that seems like fun. So I went out to the Big Ten Championships um, where Joey just dominated. Tom Lehman would take issue with that. But um, mm-hmm. my <laughs> yeah. So, tells me that Joey won by like seven or eight strokes. And he was doing these things where, you know, he was extraordinarily long. And he would drive the car fours, you know, a guy would be putting and here comes a ball between his legs. I thought, this is, you know, it seems like a pretty easy game to play. So I started like that, but uh, playing, but then helping Joey, um, to the little extent, I think I really helped him. Um, he was on his way to a fine career, um, but just you know, uh, being such close friends with him and traveling with him, and learning about the game, um, the, the 
you know, my early clients were incredibly patient with me uh, in learning about the game. And uh, you know, I think I'm a, I'm a good listener. And um, you know, I think I, I put the, uh, as I hope all psychologists would, you know, put the needs of the, of the athlete uh, above my own and you know, try to study the problems as closely as I could. And so, you know, I, I ended up with a lot of really great clients who were basically just best friends, really. Bernhard Longer was one of the first, and this year will be this 39th year, maybe, we've worked together. Yeah. And there were many wow. others that, um, you know, I I uh, would hope I helped a little bit. Um, and they certainly helped me in terms of understanding the game and formulating some of the questions that we then address in in scientific studies. Tell us about the work that you're doing with the National Academy of Sciences, um, which you're doing on behalf of the Army Research Institute. Uh, what is the work you're doing there? Well, that um, I'm currently not engaged in uh, that. However, I would love to be. The um, you know the way the government operates um, when, for example, the army wants to have questions answered, they they address the National Academy of Sciences and ask them to to study a problem. And so, I guess back in 1988 or 89, maybe they uh, the army recognized that you know we were living in a in a new world that concept resonates in you know 2020 here but mm-hmm. that the way they trained uh soldiers um you know for example I grew up where there were several you know army um, installations that were deep mm-hmm. snow trained and, uh, you know, they just calculated that, hey, you know, we're not going to be fighting deep snow, uh, uh, you know, altercations. You know, the model of the military has to change to, you know, like smaller units, more of the, you know, Navy SEALs, um, you know, those kinds of uh, efforts and expertise. So they asked um the National Academy of Sciences, which is our highest scientific body in in the U.S., to convene a task forces to study training and human performance under pressure. And uh, I had, before my time at the University of Minnesota, I was on the faculty at UCLA, where a close friend of mine to this day um, uh, Dr. Robert Bjork was the chairman of this task force, and he invited, uh, I think it was 10 of his uh, cronies, including me, to study uh, the issues that needed to be studied. So we evaluated all ideas 
about what enhances human performance, what enhances learning and performance um, from the ideas, for example, in this resonate, Ted, you and I had had some uh, conversation about this in the past that mm-hmm. included even entrepreneurial efforts where someone, you know, has a device that they claim enhances learning or performance under pressure or whatever. Mm-hmm. But we tried to um, look at the broad scope of all techniques, again, for the purpose of uh, informing the military about how they could improve training um, for what was expected to happen in, in the future in terms of you know, military intervention. Um, one good example of that is the uh, understanding that, for example, in the United States has been pretty clear that they're a superior military force. However, the Vietnam War, I think the numbers are um, that the kill ratio for you know our pilots was something like um, one to ten. That is, we had ten of our fighter pilots shot out of the sky for every one of the North Vietnamese MiGs, mm. and that is something that Americans don't tolerate. The fact that they right. had gotten behind. And so we were asked to think about that. Why would that be? And what can we do to change that? And that led, for example, to um, the fighter jet program. Uh, the sort of uh, people remember the Tom Cruise movie. Um, what was right. The name Top, of Gun. That? Yeah. Top Gun. And, yes. And so we, um, over many years had been suggesting that a training program has to be uh, oriented towards desirable difficulties, towards making it hard um, and not easy. And of course, you know, at first the military didn't like that idea that they were going to have to spend more money. They were going to be using ex pilots who were really very good, who had recently done this. Um, and that, you know, that these simulations were going to be very real with desirable difficulties piled on top of that. So it was made harder than it would be in, uh, you know, the naturalistic environment. So to make a long story short, um, you know, the, the, and the Army adapt to that. The next, you know, uh, test was the Gulf War, and I think those numbers were had reversed, that we shot down, you know, 20 uh, of their fighter jets, and they shot down one of ours, uh, or two, I think. Um, so the training was a success. Um, and more recently, there another, um, you know, set of pressures to look at how we 
select, um, you know, different recruits for different jobs using, uh, and can we use neuroscience um, and all of the, you know, materials and techniques that neuroscience uh, is coming up with to better select and better train uh, military people. Let me ask you, um, Fran, you know, you, you've indicated that um, in, in the notes that I, I received that the focus of attention is, is many times assumed to be in three uh, directions, uh, on, on oneself, um, on the internal, uh, in other words, um, thinking about coordinating body parts where this goes and that goes and throughout the, the golf swing, and also on the external, which uh, is on the outcome uh, or uh, ball flight uh, or even the target. Many golfers, uh, and I'm referring again to our amateur golfers, uh, continue make making a lot of wrong uh, choices or, or decisions on where to focus their attention. Where should our focus be while we're playing golf to gain optimal performance? What should we be thinking about or should we be thinking at all? Well, certainly a, a minimum of thinking about the self and a minimum of thinking about, you know, where I put my body parts to make a good swing. You know, we, we have to finally come to grips with the fact that humans are not good at, at uh, performing proprioceptively. That is, um, they don't do well, you know, some better than others for sure, at trying to, you know, put your body parts on certain, you know, like put your hands right there and make sure that you've got, you know, 92% of your weight to your left side and and make sure that the pressure is on your instep or whatever. We're really not very good at that. And, you know, by, Mm. and all of us have experienced the total, you know, wiring problem when we are thinking about ourselves, you know, Oh, everybody's watching me. Uh, I got (laughs) to bury the salt so I don't blah, blah, blah. And we know that there's, uh, you know, just, not very much um, to be gained from trying to, again, direct our body parts to, um, you know, hit the ball better. Um, we uh, compared it to the, uh, some are old enough to remember this, but remember the old, you know, telephone systems where you're calling your buddy yes. and right. a busy signal and, uh, that's the way, you know, you're trying to access this, you know, memory of how to do this and you get a busy signal because you, you know, you touch the wrong chords in a sense. And we've found in some research, which, you know, I hope will be well, well received that actually auditory imagery which doesn't involve, you know, again, trying to place your body parts, you know, in certain positions or think about the self and, you know, what you're gaining, what you're losing, what people think, 
you know, was my hair parted right and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> we have, and I know you, you know my dear friend uh, uh, who was an Austrian, German, Taiwanese, Canadian. Uh, yep. <laughs> she is, um, who, yep. Uh, through Dr. Anders Ericsson, who tragically uh, died two weeks ago. Um, oh. We, uh, yeah, it's a terrible blow. Many people know him uh, because of mm-hmm. the work of Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hour rule thing. But this was a guy who, you know, was just dear friend and confidant and uh, Chia had uh, called him. She is a, a musician who was a music yes. professor in Germany and mm-hmm. he had had these ideas that you can learn and perform better by auditory imagery like a musician does um, seeing the music if you will um, and he had been talking to Anders about, you know, how could he, he'd been helping a couple of golfers uh, and other athletes in, in Europe. And how could he find out if this was a real thing? And Anders referred him to us. And, um, you know, he, Anders knew about you know, the sort of 30 some year history that we have had, you know, with GIFs and, and other solutions involving auditory imagery. And we developed a, a, an international study, you know, some of the world's best scientists, and Bob York from UCLA and Kim Lee from McMaster. Um, many golfers know Kim. Um, and, uh, uh we coordinated some studies to test whether the use of sonification um, that is a sort of educated um, sound sequence that, you know, might uh, simulate um, the, the golf swing, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. And, not so surprisingly, I guess, in the three, um, you know, uh, golf skills that we tested, uh, particularly in driving, where people pick up, you know, seven, eight miles an hour by simply using a sonification um, and chipping and putting. There were, you know, simple um and where we compared how teachers normally do that, usually with, well, put your hands here and make sure you don't do this. And, blah, blah, right. blah. and there was a very statistically significant difference, um, which, you know, didn't surprise Chai and, and, or any of our scientists. And, you know, we have, we'll be publishing the paper soon, um, I can't say that we're certain that it's not just a, as you were mentioning, Ted, a Mm. direction of um, focus effect that prevents you from thinking about where you're putting your body parts. 
and therefore you're just sort of relying on, you know, what you already know how to do. Um, or you know, it, many of us will recall that, oh, I guess back in the 80s, a number of young women tennis players were um, developing this grunt after they hit the ball. Yes. And yeah, I remember still that. Do, where they went. Ah. Yep. Um, and you know, surpri- surprisingly, maybe to some, um, uh, again because of my background in baseball, I have uh, video and audio of certain pitchers. Nolan Ryan was the first to tell me that he needed to empty air from his lungs so that he needed to to do that when he threw his fastball, which is maybe the best in the history of baseball. Um, So uh, we'll need more research to really figure out the exact nature of the improvement whether it's just a mechanical thing, as, as Nolan suggested, that he was just emptying air, so making it easier to move, um, whether it was a sort of neuropsychological uh, attempt to uh, change the focus of attention uh, to something that wouldn't, you know, uh, arouse a self-consciousness or a, an internal focus on what we were doing. Um, uh, so it's, you know, it's all, uh, as as all the work that I've been involved with for 40 years, it's just fun uh, stuff to consider and to try to, um, you know, figure out and maybe help some people. Yeah, it's a very. It was definitely a very interesting uh, study. I know, um, you know, when when Chai uh, came over for the PGA show in uh, this past January, um, you know, he talked to me about um, the very thing that you just mentioned, and uh, actually um, helped me with a demonstration. And it was it was very very interesting. Um, um, you know, he we obviously were both uh, you know able to have many discussions throughout the um, you know the several days, and it was just a really uh, really really interesting um, his perspective. And and actually, he was scheduled uh, to come on the show uh, back in April. Um, in, in sort of a lead up to his travels here uh, in the United States, but obviously those uh, had been put on hold, to, you know, due to our current uh, situation with with the pandemic. So um, we'll we'll save that for a later date. But um, yeah, it was very very interesting. And um, you know, I've I've been in in uh, golf instruction for for 25 plus years, and you know, we we've heard similar things discussed in the past, but not to the to the level that that you know that he uh, talked about with me at the show. And uh, I'm, I'm really, you know, excited for him and his, you know, his partner, um, who who's working alongside with it on on the business side of it. But um, 
really seeing where it goes and, and the advancements that they're going to be able to make. And, and it wasn't just in golf. I mean, obviously that was one area that we discussed, but he talked about medically some of the uh, benefits that, that he was able to see through that, that whole process. So yeah, um, hopefully we'll, things will clear up, uh, you know, in the next little bit and he'll be able to, uh, you know, refocus and, and continue on with his plans. But yeah, I, I know exactly what you were talking about and, and it was very, very interesting. Um, Fran, it's hard to believe, but we're we're at the end of our our, our time together. I, I can't believe it was a, that was actually a fast hour for for me, anyways. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed our our conversation, and I wanted you know to give you an opportunity if um, you know if if there's somewhere that the listeners could could go to to learn a little bit more about what we talked about this evening uh if there's a website we can direct them to or uh or a link of some kind um please share that with us and uh i will uh will do my best to encourage the listeners to to go and and find that because i you know your aspect of the game and and what you do as a profession um is is you know been the topic of many many discussions over the years and um as as a coach and as a, a teacher professional, you know, we learn that there is so much more to the game uh than the, the grip, the posture and the, the ball position and so forth. And it all it all takes place uh you know between those few inches between the ears and we're learning so much about that with, with help of, of uh, great individuals like yourself. So um can the listeners, is there somewhere that we can direct them to to, to learn more about what we're what you're talking about this evening or Oh, gee, Ted, first of all, you're very gracious and uh, kind. Um, I don't really, um, you know, have uh, my kids at one point set up a, a, a and some sort of, you know, demonstrations and pictures of me in uniform and stuff. I, I, I've never seen it. Um, so, unfortunately, there isn't um, anything I can refer you to on, on somewhat of a private person um sure and but on the other hand i'm happy um to um you know answer questions or um anything i could do for people to uh, possibly help out i'm happy to do so you're certainly welcome to uh give out my should anyone be interested if i you know haven't confused them too much um i'm <laughs> happy to have them email me questions or I can send them, you know, some of our literature and um, studies and so on. So I'm, I'm happy to to do that. Um, well, I I will be more than happy to uh, uh, to certainly do that uh, for those that that reach out to me. Um, and we'll just have to make a point of having you come back on the show uh, again and uh, and share some uh, you know some more great information and. Uh, maybe be, maybe before we do that, I'll put the word out and, and get some people to um, filter out some questions that they might have for you, and, and we can uh, review some of those uh, the next time you come on the show. But, uh, Fran, I, I just want to say, uh, again, thank you very much for, for giving of your time. I appreciate it very much, and um, just keep doing the, the great things that you're doing. It's it's uh, fascinating to, to hear um, you know some of the perspectives that you shared this evening about what really, you know, goes on um, with with elite level players and and some of the differences um, 
you know, that amateurs uh, hopefully can, can draw from. So I appreciate it very much, and I hope that you'll come back and join me again uh, sometime in the near future. Ted, I'd be, uh, I'd be thrilled to do that. You're, you're too kind. I'm sure you're not hearing that for the first time. So <laughs> I, I, I look forward to that. Well, I, I look forward to it as well. Not a problem. You have a great evening, and, and again, thank you very much, and stay safe, and, and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks, Ted. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was my very special guest, Dr. Fran Pirazzolo, uh, sports psychologist, and just what a great, uh, uh, a great repertoire of experience that uh, Fran brings to um, many areas of, of the sporting world and, and obviously to golf uh, particularly and uh, just uh, a, a lot of great information. Uh, if you're joining us late, I hope that you'll go back and listen to the uh, show in its entirety. You can go uh, do that by going to blogtalkradio.com and type in Golf Talk Live and scroll down to the uh, on-demand section. You'll find the recorded version of the show. On that note, uh, there will not be a Golf Talk Live next week. Um, I'll be skipping a week because I'll be away. Uh, but I'll be uh, returning the following week uh, with uh, another great uh, Coach's Corner panel and another insightful interview with my special guest of the evening. So have a great uh, weekend, everybody. God bless, and I will see you next time right here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts or listen on any of the following social media platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.